Welcome to Conversations Live. For more than a decade, we've brought you the best in books, entertainment, celebrity interviews, and current events. When the movers and shakers of the world have something to say to you, they say it to us first. Here's your host, Cyrus Webb. Welcome back, everyone, to Conversations Live. I'm your host, Cyrus Webb. Glad you all could join us once again. For a radio audience tuning in at WYAD 94.1 FM and WYADonline.com, we're glad that you all can be with us. Also, tuning in through online affiliates around the world, we're glad you all could be with us as well. I think everyone can agree that as we're entering a brand new year, there are some old challenges and difficulties that we are bringing along with us, and they have to do with things that impact all of us, no matter where we live in the United States or around the world. Uh, next guest has written a book that I think not only addresses some of those issues, but also gives us some actionable steps we can be able to take to be able to really make some change. We're excited to welcome Michael Swike to our broadcast today. He's the author of the new book, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. We'll talk to Michael not only about the work he's been able to devote his own life to, but also what it was like for him in this book to be able not only to share some steps, but also how all of us can be a part of the solutions instead of just talking about the problems. If you all are just hearing about the book, we will let you know how to get your own copy of it. Michael, thank you again for the time. Really do appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Michael, this book is, I was saying to you before we went live here, I, I, was, I was so, I was inspired by it. I felt I was not only educated more about some of the big issues that you not only talk about in your title, but also that we kind of see in the world today. But I also like the fact that you do address the action that we can take, and we'll get into that. But I want to begin by talking about the conversations you've been having. What has it been like for you, Michael, to see the way that people are responding to the book? Well, the book has gotten quite a positive response. People like it. People find it interesting. People tell me that they learn things when they read it, which is the best uh, that I can hear is when people actually learn something. And uh, people also find it very clear and well-written, and they appreciate that, that there's no jargon in there. It's just a very straightforward discussion. And, Michael, that is the part, and I said that to you before we went on here, too. And see, I didn't even realize that's something what you were hearing. I, 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 a lot of times in our audience knows I love reading and I love being able to share. But a lot of times I've had readers say to me, you know what, Cyrus, that book, you know, I almost needed another book to explain what it was talking about. <laughs> you know, right, your book right. is not like that, uh, Michael. You really – and what I love is we're able to learn more about you. For those who are new to you and your work, we're able to learn more about you as well. Did you know going into class race and gender, Michael, that you would insert some of your own story, your own work in this? Yes, uh, that was part of the plan. Uh, I know that there are readers these days, younger readers especially, who want to know something about who's speaking. They're not just interested in the ideas uh, abstracted away from the people who are involved. So I I did uh, think that it was important to put in something about who I am, but then also to uh, use examples out of my own life and out of the experience I have in organizing and in teaching um, in the labor movement, in the civil rights and black liberation movements. Those are all places where I've learned, and in order to convey to people what it is that I have learned, I think it's helpful to give the context of the learning and uh, how those those ideas have come to me. 
So true. In chapter two of the book, key questions for progressive politics. Um, you, you write this, Michael, and, and I love the way that you frame this, and I definitely think it's a great way for us to start our conversation. Uh, for those who have the print edition of the book, it's found on page 52. You write, clarity about class involves more than recognizing the working class. We need to be clear about the other pole of the class system, too. The will to engage in confrontation with the ruling class requires that we look at the rich through the lens of class as we do with the poor. If the target of our political campaigns is the rich or even the billionaire class, without further explanation, we reinforce the false understanding of class as a question of degrees of income and wealth only. Although it might seem counterintuitive, given that billionaires can make attractive targets, especially those who engage in ridiculous degrees of, of conspicuous consumption and tax avoidance, this approach actually misses the proper focus of struggle, the capitalist class and its ruling elites. I want to talk about that because that's one thing that I really love about this book. It really does break things down in a way to be able to really get to, one, really understanding the problem outside of just a umbrella we may hear, right, or or, or even, I, I, like you mentioned there, the rich, and really breaking it down to not only where the issue is, but also where to find the solution. Why was that important for you to make sure you did in this conversation, Michael? I think that the class is such an important part of uh, people's experiences and, and uh, prospects, and class is such an important part of how our society uh, develops and grows and, and what challenges we face. Now, or, ordinarily in this country, in the United States, when we talk about class, it's, it's if we ever do, but when we do, it's often in terms of income. So there's a broad yeah. middle class of people who make uh, maybe forty, thirty, forty thousand, fifty thousand dollars, eighty thousand, and then there's some rich people at the fringes at the top, and there's some poor people at the bottom. That I think is the typical way in which we talk about class, and I think it's not very helpful. Uh, for me, it's a more appropriate way to think about class as a question of power. And class is a question of power that arises in the way that we make things, in the economy, in production. So uh, when we talk about power, we're talking about a relationship. A person has power if someone else doesn't. A group doesn't have power if someone else does. And the question of power then raises the relationships that operate in the society, not just that there are some people at the top, some people at the bottom, but that there's a connection there. There's a relationship that grows organically, it grows naturally in the way we produce things. So if we talk about a working class, I'm not talking about income as much as I'm talking about people who go to work and don't really have a lot of control over what they do. There's more or less supervision over what they do. They have a job. They're told what to do. They do the job, and they go home or they go off to another job. That's the working class. Now, usually when we think about working class in this country, people often have in their minds lunch buckets going into factory gates. Well, industrial workers are very much part of the working class, but the working class also includes home health care workers. It includes uh, call center uh, people. It includes help desks in technical companies. It includes all kinds of people in, in industry, in construction and mining, but also in a very great array of services. That's the working class. Now, we also then, if we understand class as power, have to talk about what's the other pole in the power. And that pole is the capitalist class. 
Now, in this country, we've come to more comfortably talk about the working class, but there's still a reluctance or a hesitancy or an embarrassment to talk about the other pole of that class dynamic of power, and that's the capitalist class. And so that's the section that you were just reading tries to get at the importance of going away from just income to understanding these power relationships. And then that allows us to understand a little better where these problems come from that we're addressing, the divisions and the injuries of capitalism. But it also tells us something about what we might do about it. Right, exactly. I want to stay with that point you just made, Michael, for a second, because the idea of capitalism, I, has it surprised you the way that word, especially for younger generations, seems to have evolved as to what, how people see that word and what it means? And do you think that the messaging of that has been part of the confusion and the conflict for some of what well, capitalism actually is? Well, I think that what's happened more recently is that socialism has come more into the ordinary lexicon of young people, and that's because of mm -hmm. Bernie and the Bernie right. Sanders campaign and Cornell West and other people who are talking about things explicitly in terms of class rather than uh, income and power rather than income. And so socialism... In, in the way that Bernie and other people have talked about it, brings forth the idea that working people should have power, not the capitalists, and or the capitalists should have less power, they should have no power, and only workers should have power, or however you want to phrase it. What what Bernie and the and the uh, progressive candidates and progressive caucus in this country, and progressive forces more generally in social movements, have come to understand that we have to name the system that we're in, and that involves naming and identifying capitalism and capitalists as targets that have to be addressed and have to be limited in their power. Exactly. And I think, again, that's why this book, the way it's written, Michael, is, is so important. I want to say for those who are just tuning in on the radio side or online, you're listening to Conversations Live. Having a great conversation today with Michael Swig. He's the author of the new book, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. I want to remind you how you can get your own copy of the book. And, of course, stay connected with Michael as well. You really dive into the, the, the title of this book uh, in, in Chapter 9 of the book, Michael, Race and Gender in Class Society. So, of course, race is something just as, and it's so interesting, I wanted to start off with that first quote from Chapter 2, because just like the way we think about, I think, class is different, the same is true for race. You even say on page 167 of the book, Michael, under Chapter 9, race is, is not just a demographic reflected in the, in the tables, um, that it is not just a census taker's checkbox. Race is an instrument of social control directed at white working people as well as blacks. When I read that, I thought, wow, that is, that's not something we always hear. So I want to talk about that, the way that you chose to address race in this book and what we sometimes overlook even when it comes to that. Well, I think that we all understand that there has been slavery in the history of this country. Uh, what often gets overlooked is that it wasn't just slavery. It was racial slavery. Uh, the English workforce that came uh, from uh, uh, the into the colonies were not enslaved. They were indentured labor. They worked for six years, seven years, four years, whatever the terms of their indenture were, 
to pay off their 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 travel, their you know the, the trip. But then they were free. African heritage workers became enslaved for life, and their children after them chattel slavery. Now the fact that that was racial slavery is important because the the reason why that happened the british did that the english imposed that system in order to divide the african and english laborers who were united in struggle against english domination in the virginia colony in 1676 african and english bond labor jointly rose in rebellion against the English. They actually burned Jamestown to the ground in rebellion against the way the British were ruling and the conditions that they were forced to work under, whether they were English or African. So the British imposed this racial slavery on African population in order to divide that working population. And that's the way it still functions. And if you look at how that continues to operate, you will see that wherever you have uh, the imposition of more racially uh, oppressive regimes, whether it's voter suppression or uh, housing segregation or inadequacies and inequalities in schooling, all the different ways in which there are racial oppressions in this country directed at people of African descent, there you will also find that white workers have the lowest life expectancy in the country. White workers have the greatest poverty rates in the country. White workers have the, have the uh, um, most difficulty in organizing unions, have the least power in the political process. The suppression of white workers and African-American people are closely, closely linked in American history. So what I'm trying to get at in this section, in this chapter, is that when we talk about slavery and the history of slavery, it's important to understand that it was racial slavery and that that had consequences for white workers weakening their position because it separates them out in the old trick of divide and conquer. And we are still in that situation with that legacy today. And to get away from that, to get around that legacy and to unite black and white in the workplace, in the political process, to unite black and white workers across the issues that we all face, I think we need to understand that this racism, this racial and white supremacy is really not good for white workers. It's great for the white capitalists, but for white workers it's not so good. Right. And and what you just said reminded me of a previous conversation I had this week, Michael, with another guest. And it kind of tied into how this is what then becomes the bait that some, especially politicians, use to create grievances that make people feel as though they've been wronged, um, that then make them feel like they've been left out, that someone's trying to take something from them. They can lead down you know, definitely a dangerous road when it comes to deepening those divisions uh, and, and the problems that we see in this country. As we both mentioned, though, Michael, you don't just address the issues. You do talk about the solutions. And I was curious, after reading Class, Gender, and Race, because you have seen so much uh, in your time in this work and, of course, discussing these topics, what is it that keeps you optimistic? What is it that makes you think that we can make a decision to be better? There is an old saying, where there is oppression, there is resistance. 
And so what gives me hope is the bubbling up of all kinds of resistance that we see to oppression all across the country in many different arenas. So there's a great upsurge in labor organizing. The UAW, the auto workers, just had a very successful set of strikes, a groundbreaking historic approach to collective bargaining that the auto industry uh, and the auto workers took there. That's now going to be brought into the south, and we're going to see what happens in Chattanooga at the Volkswagen plant. Maybe go back to Nissan and Canton, Mississippi. I don't know exactly how the UAW is going to do it, but there's something going on there. There's the Black Lives Matter uh, movement or the movement for black lives. Very powerful movement, raising very powerful questions around voter suppression, around police violence, and demanding equality and justice for people of African-American descent. There's the environmental movement going on. That's very broad and very wide and also has a great base within young people. So there's a, and there's the Me Too movement and a women's movement now around uh, reproductive rights and health, women's health issues. So we have across the board, including on foreign policy, including on international relations, challenges that are coming up to the injustices and to the injuries and to the divisions that we find in our society. Now, what I'm trying to do in this book is to show people how those various specific movements all have their common root in the way in which capitalism is organized. And so there's a unity, a natural unity that exists among all these different movements. Instead of being in our own silos, when we do a particular movement, participate in a particular action, that's not just for our particular purposes, but is part of a broader uh, movement where each element of the movement reinforces the power and the capacity of all the others. And that is where I think we have some possibility for growing our movements and for growing our political power. Yeah. You you do say, though, in a, such a balanced way as you wrap up the book that we're living in hard times, uh, as you talk about. But then you also go on to say, and I love the, the framing of this, you said these are exciting, challenging, fascinating times. And so I think for our audience out there, it does let us know that it will not be easy, uh, but definitely shows the necessity of the work. And that's why conversations like this, though not always easy, are so important. Again, the book is Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. You can get it through our friends at Amazon.com or through your favorite bookstore. It is published by PM Press as well. You can find them at pmpress.org. Michael, I really appreciate you stopping by the program today. How can our audience stay connected with you? Well, uh, they can uh, send me an email. Uh, my name, Michael Zweig, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-Z-W-E-I-G, Michael Zweig, 1942-1942. That's a number at the end. Michael Zweig, 1942 at gmail.com. I'd be happy to hear from people and uh, get connected. All right, Michael. Congratulations again on the book. Thank you again for the thoughtful conversations. It's evoking for sure. And looking forward to chatting with you again, Michael. Anytime. Thanks very much for your attention, and uh, hello to uh, the American people down there in the South. Thank you. I appreciate that, Michael. And we thank your audience for tuning in to another great segment of Conversations Live. Until next time, I'm your host, Cyrus Webb, saying, as always, enjoy your day, enjoy your life, enjoy your world. Thank you all for choosing Conversations Live. Let us go make today amazing. Take care.
With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 